Hello and welcome to this bite-sized episode of the Art of Teaching podcast. I've been receiving so many positive reviews and feedback from you, and I'm so grateful that you'll take the time to listen. These bite-sized episodes are small snippets of a larger conversation from interviews available at theartofteachingpodcast.com. Today we have another bite-sized episode of the Art of Teaching podcast with the amazing David Allen. His best-selling book, Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity, is a global phenomenon. Time magazine called this book the self-help business book of its time. What you may not know about David is that he was an accidental productivity guru. In his own words, he is the laziest person that I know. In this snippet of the larger interview, we talked about his life before, He became one of the world's most sought-after speakers and management consultants. I hope that you enjoyed this bite-sized episode. Seemed to maybe like someone that was quite unlikely to go into corporate management and training from your early years. My understanding is that in high school you wanted to be an actor. And also you spent a fair bit of time in Switzerland in 1963 and 64. What were some of those times like? And if we'd have gone back to then and said, at some point, David, you're going to be co- training corporate America. What would, uh, what would your thought be? I'd have been, hey, come on, all the way through. I was more interested. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. As a kid, I was an actor in, in, the, in the, the city that I grew up in, in Louisiana, in the U.S. I, you know, was in summer theater and some and, and community theaters as the kid actor. I did a lot of those roles and I loved that. I loved that experience of acting. So I thought, well, maybe be an actor. Of course, my mom was going, David, you can't just go be an actor. You got to get a job. You got to get an education, you know, yep. you know, all that stuff that parents always tell us, you know, <laughs> make sure your life is secure, but you know, yes. so, um, so then, yeah, I got, so I had the, the, the privilege of being, chosen as an exchange student for a full year uh, while I was in high school. So I lived with a Swiss family uh, for a year. And, you know, I went to school, I went to the school that their kids went to. It wasn't an academic program. It was more social called live with, live with the Swiss family, go to the school their kids go to and so forth. Of course, it happened to be, it happened to be Real Gymnasium Judicaberg, which is one of the top university prep schools in the, in Europe. Not only that, it was two blocks from the Kunsthaus in Zurich, where I walked down and sit in the room of Monet's Water Lilies. And I was two blocks from the Cafe Odeon, where Dadaism was started and where Jung and, and, you know, all kinds of people hung out and read the newspaper and drank coffee and whatever else they drank. And, and, you know, a whole lot of the, the intellectual sort of uh, DNA of modern Europe started right around there. So I was suddenly thrust into a world, you know, I grew up in a you know, relatively provincial place in the Southern US. And so that certainly broadened my horizons a ton. I mm-hmm. thought I might want to be a lawyer or whatever. What do you, you know, when you grew up in the fifties and early sixties in Freeport, Louisiana, then there are not a lot of options. If you make good grades, you either become a teacher or a lawyer or a yeah. doctor. And was this you know, the first that's kind of that's kind of it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And sorry to interrupt. Was this the first time that you'd been out of Louisiana, uh, going over to Switzerland, or did it really? No, I, I, I'd been. I had a I had a sister who lived in Connecticut with a very hip guy who was one of the one of the top beat generation writers, John Claudel Holmes. So I actually, at a fairly young age, my dad died when I was young, and my mom then took me up to visit my sister. She was a good bit older than me, and. Uh, 
I got a window into a much hipper world than I'd grown up in. And of course, when I was an actor as a kid, there were all kinds of people that had come from other places because it was semi-professional and there were people that came from New York and I was able to sort of expand my horizons a good bit, you know, even before I went to Switzerland. But Switzerland made a big difference just to see the world from a whole different angle and especially from a place like Zurich, you know, which is quite understated but quite sophisticated you know, in terms of the, its, the, its culture and, and the DNA and the history there. Yeah. So I got fascinated by that. So when I came back, I said, okay, liberal arts was probably the education I should get into because I, I loved art and I loved thinking about that and so forth. So I thought, so I went to college, thought I was going to be a philosophy major, got bored by the philosophers because they just kept proving their original hypothesis using their original hypothesis. I said, well, that's kind of a yeah. circle. But uh, what was more interesting was the philosophers themselves and why they thought that way. And I had a great advisor who taught me, he was a hist my history professor and he was an intellectual history, history of thought not so much military or political history, but more what's the culture, what's the thinking like, and so forth. And he turned me on to the whole idea of cultural paradigms, that a culture like the Greek culture, that there were paradigms and there were, there were uh, sort of context that thread through art, music, politics, science, yeah. um, you know, all of that, that there was something inherent in the DNA. I'd, I'd call it now a signature of a culture. Come on, you know, Australia's got a signature. Absolutely. You know, as you know the UK does. You know, every country, every even every city, every, every has its kind of own DNA. That that thing if if, if you kind of speak that way, think that way, you're probably from there. Yeah. You know, in terms of how they do that. Is, is that where you so, were, sorry, sorry, please continue. So anyway, so the longer story than you need to hear. No, no, but, no. So I was fascinated by the idea of paradigms and then got into graduate school in American intellectual history, Berkeley 68, and discovered that I, at some point I said, you know, instead of studying people who are enlightened, I want my own. So of course that was heady time to be in California and Berkeley in 68 and 69. So I dropped out of graduate school to go find myself and find God, truth, and the universe and did a lot of personal growth exploration. Got a black belt in karate, explored the martial arts, explored meditation, spiritual practices, all kinds of things. Yeah. So that was, so then if you told me then that I was going to be in <laughs> considered a guru in the corporate training and coaching world, I go, who, what are you smoking? Oh my God, you know, are you yeah. kidding? You know, not exactly what, that was not exactly a strategic path I thought I would take. It seems, um, I, I've heard the saying, and I'm, I'm not sure who to attribute it to, but uh, looking forward, it's really hard to, uh, um, to have a plan, but looking back, it's quite easy to connect the dots. And it seems like quite similar. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. And exactly. Looking Just back, one foot in front of the other. Yeah. To a large degree, it was just pay the rent, yeah. you know, because I was in my own self-exploration, but they don't pay people to do that. Yes. So I had to, had to pay the rent and make a little bit of a living anyway. So that's where all my, if you read Wikipedia, I had 35 jobs by the time I was 35. You know, they, they weren't careers. They were just jobs. I drove a cab. I cooked hamburgers on Telegraph Avenue. I, mm -hmm. you know, I, I had a vitamin distributorship. I ran a gas station. Yeah. You know, but all those were just because I had friends in, in the world out there to, to do that. And I was just kind of helping them out and doing what I was doing so that I could pay the rent. Then yeah. I discovered, hey, you know, I like to go in and see what I could do to improve the situation. I'm the laziest guy you ever met. So I just looked. You know, now they call that process improvement. I just called it lazy. Well, now we can call that efficient. Well, it, it sounds <laughs> like that, 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 
like there, there was no such thing as a, a as a consultant or a, a or a an advisor back in the 60s it was just like you said you option. Oh, I, I couldn't even spell it what is that i mean especially yeah. growing up in the south of louisiana i mean yeah. consultant what that you know and it's so interesting hearing, even, yeah it's so interesting hearing that part of your story i mean um when i first read your book uh, getting things done a, a number of years ago now probably probably 20, maybe 15 years ago now when I was at university. Um, and it's just so structured. And so I had this image of you that you'd always had this very clear path from kind of from uh, high school to graduate school to corporate America. And, and it's so lovely to hear to hear part of your story. It wasn't always the case. It's uh, really interesting. Um, David, could you tell me um, sort of the, the significance of um, Oswald Spengler and the role that um, or the influence that he maybe had on your life? Well, he wrote the, the the Decline of the West, which was the yeah. first book my history professor gave me to read. He said, "Read this," and it was fascinating because he laid out in a very Germanic way, yeah. you know, that uh, here's the here's the overview, the Geist, the you know whatever, whatever. And he he identified that that they were like I think nine, either seven or nine, I forget, significant cultural paradigms. Wow. There was the Greek paradigms. There was the Arab paradigm. There was the Russian paradigm, and the oriental paradigm and whatever and he was the first guy that that because it was called the decline of the west yeah. he compared western civilization with the decline of the rome because when you looked at rome's dna when it started to decline there were a lot of parallels that he drew to the western culture it was fascinating to me and he didn't even use the word paradigm and we didn't even use the word paradigms back then but it was all about what's the signature of the culture see the greeks never had a zero I didn't know nobody that. had in, nobody had the infinity idea until Western civilization and the Gothic cathedral, which was up to infinity. There was no, That's and right. so the, the Arabs didn't have that at all. They had the globe, they, and so he took all that. I, I was fascinated by that. I was going, wow, how cool is that? That yeah. something invisible is is affecting how we perceive, how we perform, how we even see the world. Yeah, and so that sort of opened my eyes to the idea that there are models out there. Isn't that interesting? That, yeah. Sorry, I, I don't mean to cut you off. There's a bit of a delay. No, no, no. Please do. But uh, believe me, I could I could rant for for days. If oh, you it, me. it's fascinating. <laughs> but I think if we sort of if we look at your um your work on getting getting these done approach and and also looking at the uh, the six horizons, it does seem to be about putting a structure and compartmentalizing aspects of aspects of your life and or even setting a paradigm around certain components of your life. And it's really yeah. fascinating to hear that story especially as you uh, moved up through graduate school and at berkeley and how you began to see kind of different models of viewing things is that is that sort of on the right track it is probably a lot of my driver were a couple of vectors inside of me one was people have said i've always been organized as i know i've always been lazy what i hated to do was overdo anything and i hated to have to go look to find something if i could put it in a place where i could find it all the time yes yeah. As, as long as I can remember, I've kind of been that way. Makes sense. It's kind of like, yay. So that was just the, you know, I'd hate to have to rethink anything. And then I also just, you know, as I began to understand myself, I'm quite a freedom guy. Uh, I don't like to be held hostage. Yeah. I guess by do that to you in the 60s. By you? any of that. So, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that sort of fit in there. As a, yeah. but, but it was, I was always there. So yeah. I was always ready to sort of take the next leap off the end of the pier, not knowing how deep the water was or how shallow it was at the end, but hoping it was okay. 
So every once in a while, I would take kind of a big risk to say, wait a minute, I seem to be too constrained with what I'm doing right now. There's some, there's some bigger game out there for me. So I, it's kind of following my nose, following my intuition, following my higher self, whatever you want to call it, that said, hmm, there's something more out there and I want to go find it, want to explore it and yeah. see what it's all about. Fantastic. It, it's, it's so, in, honestly, David, it's so interesting just to hear that, that story and that context between, uh, behind how you got to the, the GTD approach and how it's something which seems to be a, a <laughs> well, natural outworking to, of what you've been doing. And, and to your point, Matthew, people, when people meet me, actually any of the people on my staff or that work with me they go god you're not you're nothing like what we thought you'd be they thought i was gonna be buttoned down and tight assed and anal retentive and you know and totally structured i'm you know i'm such a follow my intuitive hunches don't fence me in spontaneous kind of guy that's how i came up with gtd was it allowed me to do that in spades a yeah. whole lot more than when I didn't do those kind of things. It's kind of like the line in the center of the road. People say, oh, I hate organization. I say, well, what do you think about the line in the center of the road? Yeah, yeah. I, Is I mean, that a good I, thing or a bad thing? It's a constraint. Yeah. It's a limitation. Yeah, but it allows you to think about other stuff while you're driving instead of somebody hitting you, <laughs> right? So, so you need as much structure as you need to be able to get back to the freedom that's the yeah. cool place to be. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Art of Teaching podcast. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion today. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com and please remember to subscribe to future episodes. If you could also let me know what your thoughts about our discussions were today, rate and review the episode on iTunes and share the resource with anyone that you think might find it useful. Thank you for listening. Until next time.